to the Christian Schools Australia podcast channel. My name is Sum and I'm the Digital Communications Officer for CSA. Well, hasn't 2020 been a year like no other? And while it's definitely had its challenges, at CSA we're thankful for the push and the chance to innovate and adapt. This year, we're excited to launch our very own podcast channel with weekly episodes hosted by various members of our exceptional national team, each exploring different topics and issues surrounding and within Christian education. So, in case you missed them or you're just looking for some excellent discussion or conversation to keep sharpening your mind over the Christmas break, we've lined up a summer series of podcasts, including some throwbacks to a few highlights throughout the year, as well as suggestions for some broader listening on the topic of kids and faith in general. We hope you enjoy this week's throwback to a very honest discussion between CSA's Executive Officer in Western Australia with a national portfolio for modes and models of learning, that's alternative education, that's Dave Stevens, and his good friend, Paul Dix. Enjoy their chat around the topic of behaviour management and asking the question of who's managing which behaviour. Welcome, everyone, to our next CSA podcast in the Horizon series. My name is Dave Stevens, and I have a national responsibility within CSA for what is termed modes and models of schooling, or looking at alternative education. I have the great honour today of having Mr. Paul Dix with me, and uh, Paul is in the sunny UK. Well, is it sunny yet, Paul? (laughs) No, it's predictably dreary. Well, I'd just like to point out that it's a winter's day here in Perth, West Australia, the sky is iridescently blue and I can't see a cloud, but, you know, that's winter in Australia for you. <laughs> it's tough for you, I'm sure. So it's a, it's a hard, hard gig, Paul. So, Paul, yeah. this is this, we've chatted a couple of times um, and it's been, it's been really exciting talking about your journey, hearing about your journey, because it's very similar to mine in, in a lot of ways. Would you, but a lot of people in Australia won't necessarily have heard of you. So can you just give us a quick rundown of the Paul Dick story for us? I did that crazy thing that some teachers do uh, on a Friday afternoon when you walk into the staff room and you see the job section of the educational press and you sort of flick through it, dreaming about the jobs that you might do. So I'm sat in East London looking at the jobs, you know, I'm looking at all the all the top jobs at Jamaica, Bermuda, you know, that the whole thing. And I, I settle on this job in, 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 and it's a head of department job. And I'm not a head of department. I'm just a newly qualified teacher. But I'm greedy. Oh, I don't know. Ambitious. Yeah, but skin. You know, I needed a job and I needed a job that paid well. Um, And I was and am ambitious. And I just thought I'm going to go for it. And all my friends said, don't do that. Don't do that. Go and take an easy job. Right. So uh, so I go for the job. And um, within 24 hours, the head teacher phones me at home. He says, you've got to come for the interview. So I I, said this job's in a place called Nuneaton in the middle of England. Right. Never been there before. Don't know anything about it, but but I just think, right, this is it. This is fate. The doors of fate are opening up. So I drive up to the school. I drive up to the front entrance to, to be told that the six other people that had been shortlisted for this job had withdrawn that morning. Right. And I'm thinking, this is it. This is this is me. I go into the interview. The chair of governors is there. The head's there. They ask me three questions in 10 minutes. They give me the job. I'm a head of department, Dave, in a school in a place I've never been before. I have no idea uh, where I am or what I'm doing, really. I'm a primary trained teacher, and this is a secondary school. You know, I've just blagged my way in, haven't I? 
Uh, and I think just before I go and prepare these amazing lessons to inspire these young people, I'll just take a drive around the estate uh, that, that's next to the school, at which point I realised that the six other people that had been shortlisted had done that drive around the estate before eight, <laughs> eight, eight o'clock in the morning, and they'd just driven home. So, so I landed myself in a, in a school that the inspection team had failed for years in absolute chaos, the kind of school where the status quo, I don't know if your listeners will re relate to this at all, but the, the, the kids were in charge. The staff took the long way around to the staff room to avoid trouble. Uh, you know, th th there was a feeling that the climate wasn't controlled by the adults at all. So that was my baptism of fire. Five years in a, in a, a, a they call them special measures schools in, in England, in, in a place called Nuneaton. Uh, and I, you know, I got battered. Dave, you know, I, it was, there was no disciplinary system. There was no uh, line or boundaries or rules or expectations or anything that applied. Um, and I had to fight my way to get respect with those kids. And after five years, we took that school out of special measures. Uh, the, um, the school was calm. Uh, I led behavior, in fact. I was put in charge of behavior in the third year there. Um, and and we, we pulled it round. So then I went to another school and tried to do the same thing there. And it worked there again. This was a three site inner city school. 98% uh, of the children were Islamic, uh, but, but it was a, a, just a state school, right? a regular state school. We had razor wire on the fences. We had bouncers on the doors and police at the end of the day in riot vans. And we used to have to let the kids from Somali origin out first. And then the kids with Bangladeshi heritage and then the kids with Pakistani heritage, because if we let them out all at the same time, they would just war on the street. So, so I, you know, I, I'm an experienced teacher who has been in, uh, you know, the very worst classrooms, being, being battered by the very worst behavior. Um, and I come to what I'm doing through experience. You know, I sat on a, I sat on a beach in, oh, years ago and I, I said to a friend, I said, I'm fed up of these people coming in and telling us how to manage behavior. I said, we've, we've been doing this for years, you know, at the chalk face. Let's, let's, let's go and train teachers. And that was the, the impetus to come out of the classroom. It wasn't, you know, that I'd had enough of teaching in any way. Uh, I'd probably had enough of staff room politics, you know, but I'd never had enough of the kids. And we just want to do something bigger that would affect more kids on a national scale. And I, I was just thinking, we spoke the other day and I was just thinking, you know, you said to me, uh, don't, don't play yourself down. I, I think the biggest thing that I, I've probably done is I've, I think in the last 10, 15 years, I, I've changed more school policies in the UK than, than anyone else. And they have my fingerprints on them. I don't just mean by writing books and throwing out ideas. I mean, sitting alongside school leaders and working it, working out how to do it so let, and, and how to do it well. I'm curious. I, I really want to hear the story of how you turned that, that first or that second school around. What were some of the things you did what, as a staff, as a group, with the leadership? So what are some of the, the things that you did to change culture within that school for the students? So we had to change ourselves, and that was the hardest thing to do. We, we, we couldn't just impose another system. We couldn't just invent a new set of rules, although we did simplify things in terms of boundaries because that made sense to everyone. Uh, but, but it was hard. You know, I think 20% of the teachers were on side at the beginning. Uh, the others were just so angry with the... With the and it was awful behaviour. It was frightening at times. 
you know, yeah, the, it, it, it did, did chew up supply, supply teachers and new teachers and spit them out. It, you know, it was awful. Um, but the bravery of, a, of the new head teacher that came in was at the, at the center of it. He, uh, he, he came in, uh, <laughs> and it's a, it's a weird story, and I don't particularly want people to kind of copy it because it's not where I am at the moment. But, but back then, uh, he, he, he went for black school shoes, okay? So, um, Explain he, that to us, sorry. Okay, so the uniform policy was you wear black shoes, right? And nobody wore shoes. They all wore trainers, white trainers, any trainers. They're competing against each other. They've got Nike trainers. They've got Adidas, tra- you know, the whole thing. So he says to the staff, right, we're going we're gonna to just have black school shoes. And if kids turn up in anything else, we're going to contact the parents. We're going to lend them some shoes. But we are not having – and nobody thought that was a good idea. Everybody said, well, come on, let's do something about learning. Let's do something about uh, attainment. Let's do something about academic ability. You know, why are we – Talking about uniform, it's redundant, it's pathetic. He said, he said it's, it, it's, it's not about that. Just, just let's just work together. So he pulled everyone together. We had one rule, which was black school shoes. Uh, people didn't really believe in it. We thought it was just a new head doing something weird. But we all went for it. That same thing, black school shoes, black school shoes. Every tutor, every teacher, every teaching assistant, black school shoes. Black was the same mantra, right? It, it could have been anything, but it was black school shoes. And within 30 days, we had transformed the feet <laughs> of the children from trainers and random slippers and all sorts. And every kid had black school shoes. That makes no impact on their academic achievement whatsoever. I get it, right? I, I'm not arguing about uniforms a great thing. I, 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 you know, I'd happily argue either side of the coin, right? The point was that for the first time ever, those members of staff were together. They were tight. You couldn't put a cigarette paper between the approach of one teacher and another. Everyone was black school shoes. And what it did was it created a belief in the team that we could change, if we could change black school shoes, something that, that people had given up on years ago because it was just not worth the argument. If we could change that, what else could we change? And it wasn't about uniform. It wasn't about black school shoes. It was about people coming together properly and experiencing a consistency in adult behavior that they had never, never uh, experienced before. And it gave us as a staff the belief that if we could change that, we could change anything. So we didn't start going after uniform. Of course, we pursued relationships and we pursued great classroom practice and structure and simplicity and rules. And, and a bit more restorative work and a bit less throwing kids into detention and giving them lines. And slowly, and it doesn't, it, there are no miracles in education, right? But there is hard graft and, and, and things can change, but it doesn't happen as an overnight miracle. It needs work. And we worked and it took us two years to, to wrestle back the control that we wanted, to have the classes where we could genuinely teach. We couldn't have done that any quicker by, by, by throwing all the kids out. We'd already thrown them all out. You know, they, they, most of them were already at home or in another uh, setting somewhere. I, uh, I love that. Um, and uh, it, that reminds me of a, a, Paul's uh, written a book um, and it's, well, Paul, can you tell us the title of your book and describe it a little bit? I know, so we, weren't, called when, I know we weren't going to talk about this, but I've decided to anyway. Go for it. That's correct. The book's called When the Adults Change, Everything Changes. And, and it's about exactly that. It's about shifting adult behavior deliberately with a team in order to change the behavior of the children. So you talk, your first chapter is all about consistency, isn't it? 
Yeah. And to, to, would you want to give us a few snapshots about what other aspects of consistency would you encourage teachers to look at? So children need staff to be visibly consistent, not just consistent in terms of uh, the rules I use, the boundaries I have in my classroom, the respect you should have for the teacher, but consistent in the way they behave and they respond. So we train teachers to be unshockable, to be unprovocable. We strip out the shouting, the screw face, the anger, any negative response from the adults is gone. That doesn't mean that suddenly we are uh, excusing behavior or allowing children to go over boundaries, but we refuse to expend our valuable energy as a teacher on the children that are doing the wrong thing. And instead, we focus that positive energy on the 95% of your children that come every day, do the right thing, kind, polite, and respectful. So our consistency needs to be visible. That means staff on the doors. Um, and yeah, we do shaking hands with kids as they walk in. In a COVID, not everyone's in, in COVID are we doing elbow bumps now? <laughs> oh no, you're not even doing are. school at the moment, are you? <laughs> oh, we are. We're getting back there. We're getting back there. Um, of course, we're not doing handshakes, but we're doing, uh, you know, in primary school, we're doing air high fives and, and uh, little dances and, uh, and all sorts of you know, jazz hands and stuff. In secondary schools, in high schools, yeah, we're doing smiles. Smiles is enough, right? I'm not, <laughs> you don't have to be a clown at the door, but smile at your students and make them feel like they're welcome and they belong is so different to lining them up making sure they've got their equipment, checking their, you know, and that sort of aggressive start to a lesson. We shift teachers' behavior, not because it, it, it suddenly creates miracles in the children, but because it's, it, it's the only behavior we have absolute control over. And the way that we use that, the way that we're tight at, you know, behavior management is a team sport. It is not about throw that teacher in with that group of kids and see how they go. It's not like I was you know, given that baptism of fire. That's not the way to retain new teachers or to encourage people to feel safe in your schools. Uh, it, it's about the team. So we, we don't, that consistency extends to meet and greet on the door, senior leaders and senior members of staff walking the corridors and making sure that people are happy and positive, looking for good stuff, not, not, not patrolling like a cartoon policeman, but looking for the good stuff and trying to catch adults and children doing the right thing. You talk, it comes to... Go on. No, I was just going to say, you talked about stripping the emotion out of the teacher. Um, are you talking yeah. about them becoming robotic? Or are we, are we, <laughs> or are we um, actually... Because we've been talking a lot with Dr. Rob Lowe over here. Most of my listen, our listeners here will know about Rob, and I know you know Rob well, um, yes. and his focus on relationality. So are, are we talking about stripping all emotion out, or what, what's happening here? <laughs> So we're going to remove the negative emotion. Okay, okay? just the negative. So okay. We're just not going to negatively re reinforce poor behaviour okay. because let's be let's be you know let's be frank about it. The five percent of children who really want to challenge adults, um, you know, that, that's a sport to them. If the adult responds going from naught to hundred miles an hour, you know, it becomes entertainment for them. They can safely challenge the boundaries within a school because because it's not the street and it's not their parents and they're playing with it. Um, you know, the children who are the 95%, they deserve to see a teacher that is calm and in control. If a child is poorly behaved, then they step over the boundary. Then, then of course, the consequence follows, but, but the consequence shouldn't be your anger or your shouting or your, uh, you know, like I had at school, teachers, you know, millimetres from my face screaming at me. It is, that does nothing to change my behaviour. Sure, 
it seems like an instant fix, but in the long term, it's just nonsense. It's not evidence-based either. It's, you know, sure. it's, it, it feels intuitive to do that, but it is not getting the best outcomes that you need for the children. So we don't have shouting in, in our schools. We don't have teachers going up to kids' faces. We don't have any form of negative uh, um, confirmation of, of poor behaviour and things really change. That's excellent. Um, when we were chatting the other day, we started touching on trauma-informed practice, which is, is a phrase that's starting to be heard a lot around Australia. Can you just talk us through what that is, what it looks like, and how you would encourage teaching staff to get involved with that? So everything we do with school policy and practice is trauma-informed, because I don't know which kids have that trauma, and I don't know which kids are going home to homes where there's domestic abuse going on. And it's hard for me to identify neglect all the time. And a lot of these issues are hidden from teachers. So we don't teach a certain group of children in a different way. We, we use trauma-informed practice to cover every child. Sorry, can, you, uh, sorry, can yeah, we just take a step back? My apologies there. Can we just take a step back and explain to us what you understand as trauma-informed practice? And uh, take us through some some small steps about what that might look like, what that might be, because it's not necessarily a term that's used widely here in Australia yet. Okay, so, so trauma for the child would, would come from uh, either an experience that's going on right now for them or, or in the past. And, and it, you know, uh, most trauma still comes from neglect of children. It's still the number one driver of, uh, of trauma for children. But of course, there's domestic, domestic abuse, abuse there's drug abuse, abuse all, all the problems that, that you have in Australia that, that we, we have, have in the UK as well. Um, Children who are traumatized find it very, very difficult to trust adults. Why? Because adults have done, uh, uh, you know, ha have proved they're not trustworthy. Now, as a teacher, you don't deserve that, but that's what comes into your classroom. And, and whereas 95% of your children might well make a connection with you really quickly, shake your hand at the door, give you a big old smile, other children will be very slow to trust and very careful. And they're actually quite right to. So the trauma-informed practice comes from recognizing at, 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 you know, at, at one end of the scale, it's the handshake and the smile and the checking in with the kid and making sure that they're all right. At the other end of the scale, it's those children who, who, who go from naught to 100 miles an hour, who fly into a crisis at seemingly the most smallest request that you give them. It's as a teacher being able to recognize okay, that's, that's different to the kid who says, I ain't doing it, I ain't bothered. That, what you're seeing now is a child in crisis. Anything you say to them in that moment, it's not going to matter. Uh, and you're now into a protective, you know, how, how can I protect the other children? How do I protect myself? How do I protect the child? It's not about throwing punishment. You know, if you throw punishment at a, tra a traumatized kid, it, it, it's not going to work. I mean, even less than it works on your, on your average kid, right? On a kid who's, who's not experiencing that. Um, lots of people who work in behavior come from traumatized backgrounds and traumatized childhood because they felt it, they've lived it, and they know how difficult it is when adults don't recognize it and, and try to sort of punish it and, and punish it away. Is so trauma-informed practice is, is both around how you respond to a child, child's escalating behavior that you recognize as traumatized and in crisis, but it's absolutely about how you approach them in the classroom, how you speak to them, your tone of voice, your inflection. A lot of children with trauma are hyper-vigilant. Your little roll of the eyes uh, could just trigger something in them and you have no idea. And 10 minutes later, your classroom is in chaos 
uh, and and it's that adult response again. So my view is always I, I'm not you know I'm not medically qualified to identify which children have long term uh, mental health issues, trauma, ADHD, autism. Uh, um, I'm not able unless I've got the information in front of me to diagnose anything. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to treat every child uh, um, in a respectful way, in a trauma-informed way, because it works for everyone. I come, I just come to that um, really simple analogy, which is, uh, uh, why would you build stairs when a ramp will do? Okay. Yep. And I feel the same as a teacher, right? Why would I treat a certain group of children in a different way? Actually, trauma-informed practice works for everyone. Um, and when we talk later about coaching and about uh, and about intervention, maybe for, for kids with higher needs, of course, there's stuff that's differentiated for them. Of course, we need to do a little bit more. But in the classroom, we can treat everyone in a trauma-informed way and, and be highly productive. You talked a little bit a minute ago about um, uh, school policies being written and who they're written for. Can you just talk us through your, your concepts with that? Because that, that was really exciting. Um, so... So people send me uh, uh, school policies all the time. I've got, uh, my office is stacked with school policies, right? And, and I've got to the point now where I weigh them uh, to see if they're any good because most school behavior policies, man, they're like 40 pages long. You remember like as an as a newly qualified teacher going into school and somebody gives you the behavior policy, you're like, I'll never read that. Even if I'm, you know, even if I'm in education for 20 years, I'm never going to get around to reading that. So you have these huge, enormous policies, all done with the best intention. And they have lists of rules, thousands of rules, right? Uh, incredible. I, I was in San Francisco a few years ago, Dave. And, I, and if you go to San Francisco, right, you, you, you go to Alcatraz, the prison island, okay? And we love Alcatraz. Um, and, and Alcatraz is amazing. And I'm slightly weird. Uh, I, I, I weirdly enjoy going slightly, into... Slightly? Slightly? Is that... Is that okay, <laughs> might not be the right edge. Anyway, moving on. Sorry, yes. Uh, proper weird. Okay. I like going into prisons. I, like, I mean, with, with people in the land without. Um, I, I find them... Uh, I find I learn a lot, to be honest, yeah. about people and institutions and systems. So I, I'm in, um, I'm in uh, Alcatraz... I go around Alcatraz, it's fantastic. I go to the gift shop. I'm in the gift shop in Alcatraz and I see this, I'm looking for gifts, right? To take home to my family, okay? Custodial gifts. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and I see this and this is, I'll show it to you, David, it's here. I know the listeners won't see it. This is the rule book from Alcatraz. Right? Yep. Did you know that, that Alcatraz had uh, 50, 53 rules in Alcatraz? Right? Okay. And these school policies that I'm sent they have more rules than Alcatraz. Right? <laughs> and literally hundreds of rules. That tell, I, I'm reading rules like, don't bring in hand grenades. I said to the head, I said, why have you got a rule about hand grenades? What, do kids, you know, kids generally bring in hand grenades at the beginning of school? He said, no, no, no. About 10 years ago, we did a project on, the, on World War II and, and we asked for, you know, for people to bring stuff in, uh, uh, ration books and helmets and all the rest. And some kid brought in a dummy hand grenades. So I thought I'd best put it in the rules in case someone did it again. <laughs> so look, most behavior policies suck. I mean, they genuinely, genuinely are, are, are useless. Why? Because they're a, an amalgamation of ideas that have, have come over years. Every time a new member of senior leadership comes in with their new ideas, they add it to the behavior policy. So it just becomes bigger and bigger and bigger. So what do we do? Ah, oh, just strip it away. Right. Let's have your behavior agreement on one side of A4, one sheet. 
Okay, that's all you need, just one sheet of paper. And put down on that piece of paper how the adults are going to aim to behave, three things. How, the, uh, you know, how, how do we recognize great behavior? How do we deal with escalating behavior? How do we deal with it afterwards in terms of consequence? Just really simple agreements. Not, not Paul's agreements, but the school's agreements, right? Staff sitting down together and making those agreements collaboratively. And, and, and you know, signing up to them so that, that A4 sheet is everyone's reference point for the next school year. Of course, you're going to have to have a policy stuck away in a filing cabinet for when perhaps the inspectors come or something dreadful might happen. But day to day, 99% of your interactions, one A4 sheet. Let's just let's simplify it in order to make it work. And let's start with the rules because nobody can remember 55 rules. I tell you, Dave, nobody can even remember 10. And some people, even though they have a beautiful acronym, can't remember five, right? I always, in training, I say to senior leadership teams, I say, yeah, what are your rules? And they say, oh, we have five. I say, okay. Uh, oh yeah, we've got a really handy acronym. They're, they're all based around the, the word hand or whatever. And I say, okay, go on then. What are they? And I, I, I've not met a senior leadership team that can name them. So five seems to be too much. Let's have three rules. Okay, let's pick them out of the air. Ready, respectful, and safe. Done. Every single interaction in your school for the next 30 days based on ready, respectful, safe. And I'll tell you what, let's do something else. Let's start every intervention with the phrase, I've noticed, so that you don't have constant argument from students. You're not involved in blame or accusation. So let's marry those two things together. Every member of staff referring to ready, respectful, safe every time they intervene with behavior, and I mean good behavior as well as poor behavior. You can hear it down your corridors. Every member of staff, it falls from their mouth, ready, respectful, and safe. You don't need new posters. You don't need a whole you know, design team to come in and put up ready, respectful, safe, because the rules that the children adhere to are the ones that fall from the mouths of every adult. And if the first time you get a kid saying, hold on, Mr. Smith said exactly the same to me about five minutes ago, boom. Now you can feel the school coming together, not over black school shoes and something as redundant as uniform, but pulling it together with, with the language that the teachers use and every adult. So that's really important as well. This is not just about teachers. This is about your, your site team, your administrative team, your non-teaching staff. Every adult in the building needs to have that full. If you did that in the next 30 days, your school would be a different place. Regardless of anything else, forget the book, forget anything else I've said. If you just did that, simplified the rules and, and had them falling from the mouths of every adult, there would be a revolution in your school and a good one. That's excellent. No, I really appreciate that. So um, we may have some leadership here in, in listening to us today. Um, do you have any key comments as we, we're coming towards the end of our time? Do you have any key comments that you want to give to leaders in how to... Uh, best help kids to make sure they stay in school and what they can do for their staff uh, to help uh, young people stay in their schools rather than fall out because at the moment we're seeing a growing number of kids fall away with mental health issues and stress issues and so on and so forth. So just, I mean, I've got a lot of things I could say to leadership, but... but no, nice things. Can we have some nice things to leadership? No, I, these are I, lovely I, guys. <laughs> these are good people. <laughs> I don't mean it like that. I mean, okay, I've got, I've, I don't mean it in a negative way at all. School leaders do an incredible job and, and are responsible for, oh, you know, for, that responsibility is such a huge leap that, that few, few are brave enough to take it. Um, I, would, I would talk about stand alongside leadership, Dave. So um, let's stop this idea that if I pass a kit to you, Dave, you can sort them out. 
clean them up, send them back to me, respectful, polite, and ready to learn. Sure. Okay? What, I, what the kid doesn't need is to know that one adult is bigger, better, and more effective than another. What we need is that stand alongside. So rather than sending kids to a higher power, I, I want my deputy head teacher, my head teacher, my principal to come and stand alongside me while I talk to the kid, right? I need their visible presence. I, I may not need them to say anything at all. So stand alongside leadership in the corridor might be just a, a, a leader stopping just as a, a conversation about picking up a piece of litter is starting to get, you know, uh, a, a, a bit unnecessary and the child's answering back, you stop and stand. And, and another colleague comes and stops and stands. And the kid just, you know, the kid, you can see the kid going, oh, you're all in this, I hate this. <laughs> you're all together. I thought we could divide you. Yeah. Uh, because, because in a punishment-rich environment, people are divided. Right? There are some people giving huge punishments, others don't want to do it. Suddenly, when the staff stand together around a consistent agreement that they've, they've made themselves, you stand alongside. So we're not going to do this, you get out of my classroom, spend the day with some growling deputy head teacher and come back. No, 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 no. Let's, let's speak to that child together. And what that does is it puts the power back into the hands of the classroom teacher. Very good. And in too many schools... The power is in the hands of a few in the leadership. And even though they have that power, it's very, very difficult to use it without the support of the teacher that's there every day, right? We've all had that experience. You send the kid out, they've done something awful. You don't see them again until next week. They walk into your lesson with a smile on their face and you immediately think, well, this course, who's, who's done anything with this kid? I haven't heard. Nobody's communicated with me. Nobody told me what has happened. And you're storming off to the senior leader's office and causing a fuss because you feel like you're not in the loop. Let's put classroom teachers back in the loop. Let's have leaders standing alongside visibly so the children see. Uh, uh, you know, and, and let's strip out that policy. Uh, you know, let's have that leadership meeting that says we're not going to do 50, 15 or 10 pages. We're going to do one A4 sheet. And the last thing I'd say to you is, and I, I'm not sure because I, I'm, you know, I, I'm not sure about the practice in terms of this in, in Australian schools, but Stand at the gate in the morning, right? Stand at the gate in the morning and welcome every child. Don't talk to the parents. Don't talk to other members of staff. Don't deal with the problem from yesterday that you still haven't done. Stand and shake the hand or smile or you know, be present for every child that walks into that school. Um, and leaders might be saying, oh, I do that already. Great, brilliant. But it, but it, it does need to be said uh, because there's nothing, there's nothing better than seeing your leadership team visible and on the gate. I'll tell you a funny story, right? Uh, uh, <laughs> I've got to be careful. Uh, a, a school, not you know, a, a school that I was working with, um, they said, "Yeah, we love the standing at the gate thing, Paul. We love that." And so I, I drove past the school a couple of months later, and the whole senior leadership team was standing at the gate, but they were in a huddle, right? And they were just ignoring every kid that was walking <laughs> past them. And I, I, I rang the head and I said, "Standing at the gate thing, how's that going?" She said, "Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah." She said, we had some more training from somebody else after you, Paul, and they said that we should have all our meetings standing up. I'm like, okay. And they said we should have our meeting in the morning. So we thought we'd have our stand-up meeting at the gate in the morning. I said, but you're just ignoring every kid that walks past. Oh, oh. So, yeah. So, <laughs> so, so stand alongside leadership, get some really good advice and work on that policy, and uh, stand on the gate in the morning and in the afternoon and make your staff and children feel safe. Fantastic. Thank you so much for that. I love that. Um, 
When the adults change, everything changes. The book by Paul Dix. Feel free to have a look at that. I've, I've really enjoyed um, flicking through that and pulling out some real gold dust there. Thank you so much for spending the time with us today, Paul. It's been thoroughly enjoyable catching up with you. I'm really looking forward to you being able to come over to Australia and spend some time with us. I know you've got a 1,001 options to go to because you're such a, a popular author now. What's one little takeaway, my friend, that you think, if you don't do anything else, do that? So... Putting children's names on the board because they've done the wrong thing reinforces their poor behaviour and makes them famous for being badly behaved. Let's stop putting naughty names on the board or angry crosses. Instead, put a recognition board in your classroom and write up the names of the children that go over and above and watch your classroom climate flip overnight. And the biggest change in any teacher's classroom is when they start observing the good behaviour first and dealing with the poor behaviour in private with the kids. So we're not doing naming and shaming. We're going to do naming and faming. We're going to make the good kids famous for their great behaviour, and we're going to make them the centre of our classroom or school culture. That's fantastic. Naming and faming. I love that. Naming and faming. And funny enough, as you were saying that, isn't that what we do with adults? We acknowledge publicly good behaviour with adults, and we have a quiet conversation on the side with someone's not doing well. Funny, we yeah. want to do that with kids as well. That's fantastic. Yeah, so, so leadership, if you're listening to this and you're thinking, I'm not sure about what Paul's just said, just next time you do a staff meeting, start writing out the names of the people, the adults in the room that are doing the wrong thing in your staff meeting. I'll give you five minutes before the whole thing just collapses, <laughs> right, in, in, in fury. Uh, and suddenly they'll see how, you know, how that starts to affect the kids. And I, and I think, I write a lot in the new book about shame. And I think naming and shaming is just one part of a whole series of, of, uh, of you know, bits of discipline that, that, that we try to use that actually involve shame. And I'm really interested to, to strip that out completely uh, and leave behaviour as a logical thing, right? Not an emotional thing. Yeah. So naming and faming. Let's find the positive and let's work with the positive. Paul Dix, thank you so much. We look forward to hearing more about you and hearing about your new book. And uh, we wish you all the best. So thank you for joining us today. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, everyone.